This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Clearly, the market is reacting day to day to some extent on the underlying health crisis. And we saw some headlines yesterday about the CDC getting in touch with states and local governments and public health officials saying, get ready for November 1 to start thinking about a vaccine. That's what we're all looking toward, but it's complicated. Fortunate for us, we have Dr. Eric Toner to help us break it down. Senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, as you can probably tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health. It's supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, parent of this radio station. Dr. Toner, really nice to have you here with Alex and myself. Well, thank you, guys. Happy to be here. All right. So we keep such a close eye, as everyone does, on the headlines related to a vaccine. But the devil's in the details here. Help us understand, once we have it, how does it get allocated? How does it get distributed? Well, those those are really important issues and ones that are still being worked out. There are uh, several uh, official committees working on uh, the allocation plans and uh, other groups working on the distribution plans. Our own group issued a report last week um, proposing our our ways of thinking about the allocation distribution schemes. The National Academies uh, issued a report uh, yesterday uh, on this same topic. So a lot of thinking going on now. Uh, a lot has to be figured out before the vaccines or vaccines um, become available. So what did you make of yesterday and the whole we could have a vaccine ready November 1st for distribution? Guys, get your states ready. Well, I think it's, I think it's perfectly appropriate to be telling states to get ready because there's a heck of a lot of work to be done to be prepared to uh, distribute vaccine on this scale. This is not anything we've ever done before. Um, but uh, I, I I think, and most people I know think, that a November 1 date is is um, not realistic by any means. And what is realistic at, at this point? I mean, you are keeping even closer track than we are, uh, and certainly uh, uh, that a lot of investors are in terms of when and what it's going to look like. What is your best guess for, for when and what? My best guess, and it is only a guess, is that um, – Sometime this winter, you know, whether it's uh, January or February or possibly even December, um, we will have one or more vaccines, probably more than one vaccine, that achieve uh, emergency use authorization. That is not fully licensed, but uh, given authorization for use, considering the the terrible emergency that we're in. this would be really complicated because if there's more than one vaccine mm-hmm. and it's not fully licensed, um, it's going to be very complicated. And two of the leading candidates uh, right now have to be maintained at, at deep 
in a deep, deeply frozen state, uh, minus 50 to 80 degrees. You know, and so you, it's not going to be something that can be delivered in a pharmacy or a doctor's office. There's going to have to be special locations set up to, um, to administer these vaccines that have to be maintained under such uh, intense cold. Oh, well, that's interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I was kind of like, oh, my doctor will call me. I'll go into the office. Like, are we talking about like the CDC setting up like a mass tent kind of thing in a Walmart parking lot? Yeah, it may well be something like that, um, because it has to be a location where um, people are not crowded together, because that obviously would defeat the purpose, um, but where there are special freezers uh, that can store the vaccine as it's being uh, distributed. So it, it, it's really hard to see how your doctor's office could do this or a pharmacy could do this. So um, right now, um, four states and, and the city of Philadelphia has been... Uh, tasked to come up with distribution plans. And as, as you noted, uh, all states have been advised to prepare for November 1, even though I don't think that's a realistic date. But, you know, it's going to be an extraordinary, extraordinary challenge. And this will be different than maybe, I'm mean, sorry to be so pedantic here, but it's going to be different most likely than just going and getting a flu shot, sort of in the way that uh, that Alex just alluded to. Yes, it's likely going to be quite different from that. The other issue with these vaccines is, at least for several leading candidates, more than one more than one shot, right. more than one dose is required. Oh, so um, you, have to, you have to come back a month later and get a second dose. So if there are several vaccines, uh, you or somebody will need to know what vaccine you received the first time around so that you get the appropriate dose on the second time around. Right. Uh, I don't think we can count on most patients remembering what vaccine they got. So there has to be a system to track this. Hmm. Right. All right. We're going to continue this conversation because I know Alex and I both have a few more questions, probably more than a few more questions for Dr. Eric Toner, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's joining us on the phone for Baltimore. He's going to be back with us on the other side of some news. This is complicated. You know, I, I feel like we oversimplify this because we're so trying to be optimistic and excited about the possibility, but this ain't easy. Well, I didn't think about the fact that you had to have an, uh, another vaccine and that it wouldn't be distributed through a doctor's office who keeps track of it. Like, you're totally right. right. Like, who does that? And right. what if you mix a vaccine together? Like, what happens then? Like, you trust it? And what if it? you forget or, you know, it's like, oh, you, you go to the, a different place and as yeah. you say, they don't have the right records and all of that. And you know, people are going to be super agitated about it to begin with. Yeah. What vaccine did you get? Well, I got enough. this one. What'd you get? Exactly. Where'd you get it? Do I have to wait in line? Yeah. More ahead. Bloomberg. So let's continue that conversation now with Dr. Eric Toner, a senior scholar at John Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, as a disclaimer, I should point out, Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. So we kind of got the lay of the land there, which the different types of vaccines and which might come first. And I guess my bigger question to you is, when something does get viable, how should that be talked about in the medical community when just in the last few weeks, it seems like vaccine proposals have become so politicized? What does the doctor community do about that? Well, I think the doctor community needs to try their very best to ignore uh, the political noise 
and uh, focus on the facts, focus on the science. Um, what do the uh, what do the trials tell us? Um, what does the data show? It's really important. Um, it's important to have a vaccine out quickly, of course, but it's even more important to do this right and to have a vaccine that we have confidence in, that we know is effective, and that we know is safe. Um, and there's been some talk in the last few days of maybe we can cut the phase three trials short if, there's a, if they're showing good response. I would caution uh, against that. I think we need to go all the way through the trials, um, particularly to be assured of the safety profiles of these vaccines. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think having a vaccine this fall is uh, is unrealistic, and if we were to do that, it would be a mistake. Well, so much politics have entered uh, into this, Dr. Toner. How much do you worry about that? And And with politics, I would also ask, the question about the public perception of safety and mm-hmm. efficacy. It feels like those things go hand in hand. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, it, it's not just whether the vaccine is safe and effective. It's whether or not people feel like it's safe and effective. Um, the vaccine does no good unless people want to take it. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of distrust now, um, distrust focused on on elected officials, distrust in in the scientific community, distrust in medicine, and distrust in authority in general. So, you know, building trust, um, being transparent, um, and and really talking about how we know that it's effective and safe, um, I think is the most important thing that we can do. So going forward, say in the next you know couple weeks, as people really return to work, it's after Labor Day. What are some of the key data points or dates that you're going to be watching to check some boxes? Well, I think the important thing to watch is how the phase three trials are going, um, how many patients they're enrolling, or how you know, and when we get uh, intermittent data reports, to really look at those carefully. Um, so I, I, I think there's, there is no, there's nothing else to look at except the date, the data that comes out and, um, and look at that carefully. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time, uh, that and, uh, of your colleagues, your time and that of your colleagues. Thank you so much. Dr. Eric Toner, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And as Alex said, of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the parent company of this radio station. And we rely heavily on them, as do many people. You know, when you look at sort of the virus tracking, the cases, so much of that uh, good information does come from our friends down at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, I'll just underscore something that he said, which... Listen, it's 2020, so we have to say it. Facts matter. Science matters. We have to be able to trust in verifiable data. Full stop. Yeah, I just wonder how that gets played out because I feel like both sides of the political aisle are going to use it as some kind of political weapon before yeah. November 3rd. Um, yep. It's not going to affect you and me because we're going to get we're, we're, we're group four. Like we're getting vaccinated right. like next fall. Yeah. But for the frontline workers and for my parents who are in their late 70s, early 80s, like, you know, like the, this matters. Um, and I wonder how doctors choose like which vaccine right. to use on which person. I don't know how that even works. 
Well, it's a great week because it is, we do it every four years, according to Joel Weber, the special election edition of Bloomberg Business Week, a double issue. Even more special because for the second time this week, we get to talk with Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. Joining us on the phone from D.C., Joel Weber, the editor, the aforementioned editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. And kudos to you, Joel, for working Josh Green extra hard. He's our go-to guy. I mean, let's let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, he's he's special on all things politics, so we always look forward to, to Josh. And we, we, I think we kept him extra busy on this one. I know that yeah. he, he's been working overdrive for, for, for weeks, if not months. Um, this story, um, you know, part of the, the, I think the big framing of the issue, like I've mentioned before uh, on the program, is uh, we try and look at the electorate in our election issues more than thinking about the race as a, as a as the horse race between candidates and about who's going to win it's more about the the people and and the places particularly this time around and Josh had this thesis that actually dates to the before times <laughs> when when things were a little different pre-pandemic and he said look the this the the story of the election um isn't one that's about the divide between urban urban places and, and rural ones it's about the suburbs the suburbs are going to decide who wins this election. And that stuck with me. I thought it was genius. And actually, I think the pandemic has only made that story more relevant. And to tell that story, he focused on Maricopa County, Arizona. Josh, why Maricopa County? Well, basically, I mean, Maricopa County to me is a microcosm of the changes happening in U.S. politics over the last four years, really over the last 10 years but they've been accelerated in the Trump era. Um, so Maricopa is the biggest county in Arizona. It encompasses Phoenix, uh, but it also encompasses all the surrounding suburbs. Arizona is a really heavily suburban state. And if you look at where the frontier of U.S. politics is today, as you said, it's not in urban areas, which are ever more Democratic. It's not in rural areas, which are more and more Republican. It's right at the suburbs where people uh, and urban meet. And Maricopa is fascinating because in four short years, it's really swung from a deeply, deeply red county to a very blue one, um, driven by a lot of the changes that are that are affecting our politics nationally, both uh, the diversifying electorate, the changing composition of the suburbs, and just changes in political attitudes among white upscale professional voters. Yeah. So who is polling better? Like, wh- what are the issues, I guess, that the people there actually care about? And then how are each of the candidates and then Trump fulfilling it? Well, the, the, the real issue in Arizona politics, if you go back 10, 15 years, has been immigration. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I chose Maricopa County is because a lot of people think that uh, Arizona politics is kind of a precursor to what happens in U.S. politics nationally. And so one of the characters I focus on in my story is, is the notorious former sheriff of Maricopa County, Joe Arpaio, who uh, became nationally famous or infamous in the mid-2000s for um, sort of flamboyant displays of hostility toward illegal immigrants, housing them in outdoor tent city jails, and really becoming a kind of an ur-Trump. Um, and so... Arizona and Maricopa County in particular over the decade between 2006 and 2016 essentially went through the same arc uh, with immigration that America generally has been going through under the Trump years. And that is 
you know, an early embrace of this anti-immigrant sentiment, followed by that sort of going too far, burning itself out. What you see happening in Maricopa is that eventually those suburban voters turned against Joe Arpaio uh, and fired him. And at least judging by the poll numbers that I've seen that both parties have and the focus groups I sat in on of Maricopa County voters, it sure looks like they're getting ready to do the same thing to Donald Trump and get rid of him. Josh, can we zoom out a little bit? Um, because I think the most interesting thing that as part of your thesis here is like how Maricopa goes, so go the suburbs. So, so talk to us about the implications for the suburbs, not just in Maricopa, but elsewhere around the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Maricopa is interesting because the trends we see there are being replicated all across the country, in, in especially in fast-growing, traditionally Republican metro areas. So whether, you know, we're talking Atlanta, Dallas, Fort Worth, Denver, Houston, Orange County, um, the, the areas outside uh, Philadelphia, Bucks County, all of these all of these areas politically are changing in the same ways. They're spurning uh, the Republican Party, which has become more Trump like, and they're embracing at least moderate Democrats. So these are these are potentially Joe Biden Democrats, but probably not Bernie Sanders Democrats. But the fact that we're seeing that in all these critical swing states like uh, the Phoenix suburbs in Arizona, a new swing state, Atlanta suburbs in Georgia, a new swing state. Even Dallas, I mean, Texas might not be swing state yet, but it's going to be competitive in the fall. And certainly uh, Colorado, already a swing state. This, this, uh, this, I think, is where not only control the White House, but possibly control the U.S. Senate is going to be decided in the fall. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about that, Josh. And I think back to that huge upset of Eric Cantor a few years ago and then sort of an upset following the upset. One of the things that you point out so rightly in this story, you've got a great quote about this, this notion of even the suburbs has changed in many ways. This is not like achiever short story in many ways. I live in the suburbs of New York City and the suburbs of New York City are very different from the suburbs of Atlanta versus the suburbs even of Arizona in some ways. So I I love that you dig into that as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the guys that I leaned on for demographic information was William Fry, a a renowned demographer at Brookings Institution who studies this stuff and said, look, uh, you know, the suburbs do not look like the suburbs looked in 1960, these kind of lily-white, upscale, madmen-type enclaves yeah. of white voters. They look more and more like America. They're diverse, rich, poor, black, white, Latino, and they're voting that way, too. And that is uh, not in extreme ways that uh, the Republican Party seems to be foregrounding during the Trump years. And so while Trump's uh, approach to politics has won him extraordinary loyalty among white working class, rural voters all across the upper Midwest and the South, it's hurt him in places like Maricopa County and Phoenix and Houston and Georgia and Atlanta, places like that that are looking more and more like they're going to be the deciding geographical regions in this election. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's really a terrific piece of reporting, not surprisingly, because it came from the pen and the keyboard of Josh Green. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us on the phone from D.C. Check that story out. It is in the new double issue of Businessweek, available on newsstands at Bloomberg.com and the terminal. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to a Thursday edition of Bloomberg Business Week, uh, looking at the markets 
Alex Steele on a day where, man, you just heard Charlie Pellet break it down. It is a legit sell-off. Yeah, it definitely. And I think that there's so many different ways that you can point the finger at it. I mean, one is the euro came off uh, the recent highs that it had. So that led to some optimism in European equities. Uh, they were much stronger earlier in this session. And then that led to more of a rotation into value, which then wound up hurting growth. And then growth just took everything down uh, in terms of, of tech, just to add the wipe out there. The question for me is like, are you going to buy the dip? If you right. buy it now, you buy it tomorrow, or do you buy it Tuesday? Because if yields are this low, how can you go by value? Why do right. you not just stay into, into tech and growth? I, I just don't see it. And do people ultimately say, oh, remember Jay Powell? He's got my back. I'm going to get back in. Uh, we're going to talk about valuations a little later on. But let's take a broader view and maybe a longer term view of the markets now with someone who is thinking a lot of big thoughts, as he always does, and putting some money to work. Jeff Tannenbaum is the founder of Titan Grove. He joins us on the phone from Long Island. He was the subject of a story earlier this week by Emily Chasen about kinder capitalism is how she described it in her headline. Really happy to have Jeff with us in the flesh, or at least on the phone from Long Island. Jeff, really nice to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us about where you're investing and how you're investing, because at a time where I feel like many people are kind of taking a step back, thinking kind of what they want to be, who they want to be, you're making some pretty specific and, dare I say, bold moves. Oh, thank you. Yes. So, you know, my focus is on problem solving because I think that's, you know, you, when you solve problems, you have long-term wind at your back and you can build businesses that can grow, be profitable, and do a hell of a lot of good. So um, the industries I tend to focus on are related to climate, energy, healthcare, food systems, um, those tend to be really the main areas. And uh, my, my, one of my big goals in, in the arena is to show that you could build businesses that are a force for good that are also highly profitable because there, there tend to be skeptics out there um, in, in, in that regard. How did you come to this? I mean, when you say it like that, it makes a lot of sense. But was there a trigger for you that was like, this is going to be my new investment thesis? Yeah, I think it, you know, it happened so about seven years ago. Um, I kind of desperately wanted to create a solar company because there were skeptics everywhere. There were hundreds of solar bankruptcies. People had given up on solar. And as someone who you know, wants to create a, 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 help create a planet that we're all happy to inhabit. It was a big area of focus for me. And I essentially did a lot of research with a great team of people. And we found an idea around building large solar farms. So picture, you know, hundreds, if not that, thousands of acres of solar panels where you sell power for 20 years. So it's kind of like building a skyscraper where you have a 20 year lease. And um, we built it into the largest solar company in the U.S., and when we went to sell it, because it was a classic Delaware Corp., um, we were faced with having to sell it to the highest bidder, because that's the law of the land, as kind of stated by the Supreme Court. So that was the catalyst, and I'll pause there and tell you kind of the pivot that that caused, if you have any questions before I do that. I want to hear about the pivot. 
Okay. So what I learned was that there were a couple of Stanford roommates who had built a, a big athletic company, and they were faced with the same issue. Um, they had to sell it to the highest bidder, even though the second bidder would have done the best thing for the long-term uh, health of the business. They sold it to the highest bidder. The business suffered. And they went out there and said there has to be a better way, and they created a new code of law called a public benefit corp. So you can now incorporate in more than a dozen states as a public benefit corp. And you don't have to sell to the highest bidder. You can you can sell to the second bidder if you think that they're going to do better. You can honor more stakeholders than just shareholders. And it's really given CEOs and boards tremendous latitude to operate without the fear of lawsuits. So they can think about workers, community, and the environment. And I think during you know, the time we're in now with a lot of the pain and suffering we're seeing and a lot of the protests, I think movement towards many more companies being B Corps will be a wonderful thing for capitalism. And frankly, I think it's necessary for us to have a, a strong and resilient capital society going forward. And so it's interesting, Jeff, as well, because you know, we're a year or so on from the Business Roundtable coming out and saying, you know, we need to think a little more holistically about this. But candidly, it's one thing for them to say it. It's another thing for big investors like yourself to actually do it. Do you feel like money is starting to move in this direction now? Yeah, I, I do think it's changing. And I, I think it's, you know, it's like other areas I've been involved with, energy efficiency, solar, and early on in private equity, that. You, know, you have the pioneers that get involved. So in terms of the public benefit corps, Patagonia was an early player, mm-hmm. Ben & Jerry's. And people looked at them and said, well, maybe these are more like socialist enterprises. And they're not. And I think what you've seen in the past four months, there are some real facts that are suggesting that tipping point is here. And I'll give you a few of them. Um, one is one of the best performing IPOs is a company called Lemonade, which... Right. Um, is a benefit corp. Danone, uh, one of a, a global mm-hmm. 1,000 company, announced that they're moving to be a public benefit corp. So this that's a massive global company. And then you have a handful of companies like the, the one I, I helped build, Lotus, recently, that are in the business-to-business space. So they're not using the B Corp label to attract consumer consumers. Um, and these B2B businesses are having a lot of success. So right. I think you're starting to really see some major data points um, along with the, the tailwinds of the ESG movement, which, which are helpful. Right. Well, still with us, Jeff Tannenbaum, uh, founder of Titan Grove, also, also a former principal at Fir Tree. Um, Jeff, I'd love to know kind of how much dry powder you have right now and where's, what's on your shopping list? Sure. So, um, you know, the... Uh, with the sale of S-Power and now the sale of Modus, um, I want to give the precise number, but um, there, there's probably 80% of the, of the capital that um, I've received from some of these sales is just sitting in cash. So I got a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of dry powder. And my, my shopping list is really uh, unchanged. It's businesses that have long-term tailwinds. You know, I, I like the Wayne Gretzky quote of skating to the puck. So it's, it's businesses that are focused on solar, clean energy, businesses that are focused on reducing diabetes uh, in terms of uh, health and food systems, and businesses that are focused on changing 
mobility um, in terms of how we all get around and the electrification of the car fleet. And then finally, businesses that are focused on retrofitting the built environment across America because about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from um, heating and cooling buildings. So most of the businesses I'm, I'm focused on right now are private because uh, that's where I feel like I, I can make the biggest impact, which is essentially starting or helping build pri- private businesses that become very large, like like S-Power, um, uh, like Modus, and, and one that I'm involved with right now is called HIG, which um, I'm very excited by. Essentially, it it is equivalent to a rating standard for the global supply chain for products you buy. So you'll be able to buy a product and have a sense for how much pollution was was emitted to make it, how the employees treated. And I think that this software company has the ability to revolutionize consumer products in terms of eliminating greenhouse gas emissions hmm. and dramatically improving um, social and labor standards for employees. So, Jeff, when you think about kind of the time we're living in right now, how much do you worry that, listen, we're in a pandemic, people are giving more thoughts to these issues. People are talking about social justice. They're talking about equality and diversity in a way that we haven't ever or for a long time. How much do you worry that this is just sort of a moment, though, a little bit of a blip, and if we get a vaccine and things get back to normal, that we'll sort of kind of put this aside again, and we will silo a lot of these issues back to where they were before, kind of on the sidelines and not as intrinsic to an investment thesis as you're describing? It's an excellent question, and that's why I'm focused on what I am, because I'm very worried about it. Um, you know, it's on the headlines, which is great right now. Um, Ray Dalio is talking about it. Biden's talking about the, uh, how inequitable capitalism has grown to be. Joseph Stiglitz is as well. The problem is, because of this one U.S. Supreme Court case, you know, 98, 99% of the companies in America are effectively Delaware corporations or Delaware LLCs, which ties the hands of the CEOs and board members to truly focus on hiring diversity, equal pay for women and men, uh, honoring communities so you don't do what companies like DuPont and GE did in terms of polluting the Hudson or polluting uh, what's created, called Cancer Alley Downing. In New Orleans. So it, I think it does have very much have the risk of a passing moment. Um, Delaware just passed a law that enables corporations to convert to a benefit corp on a majority vote. It used to be two-thirds, so that will help. Mm-hmm. And I also think the venture capitalists and P firms are recognizing that the best talent now wants to work for mission-driven for-profit companies. Right. And I think we could see, I think we could really see a sea change where instead of me having to convince a PE firm that it's a good thing to be a, a benefit or a B Corp, they're asking for it. And uh, that happened with the sale of Modus. I said, look, we're a B Corp, we're mission-driven, we're incredibly profitable, we're going faster than our competitors. And they embraced it. And that, was, that would have been unheard of two or three years ago. So I, I do think that there's the risk of the moment, um, but I think that the beauty is we have this this emerging um, form of corporate governance that could really take the torch and run with it in an accelerated manner. And that's that's very much what I'm hoping for. 
Well, it was really good catching up with you and hope to catch up again in the not too distant future to understand whether this really is uh, taking hold. Here's hoping. I mean, I certainly personally believe deeply in what you're doing and have some optimism that maybe things are, are changing. Jeff Tannenbaum, founder of Titan Grove, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Check out the story that Emily Chasen wrote. It's a terrific one. Jeff Tannenbaum bets on kinder capitalism even for LBOs. Loved reading it and loved catching up with him. A really thoughtful guy, Alex. Well, yeah, and it's not only, you know, will investors still like this when things get better, but it's also um, discerning which investments are good and bad. And there's some people who've been in this kind of industry for a very long time and others that are like catching on to the fad because it is a fad. Um, And it's hard to know where that ends up. I think from that perspective, on a public uh, um, entity perspective, that the SEC could be very helpful. Yes. They could sort of you know, figure out what ESG actually means, then we can start rating companies by it. Right, right. And and getting a little more specific, as you exactly. say, and deliberate and metric-driven about all the E, the S, and the G. Um, you know, we're talking more and more about the S, the social piece mm-hmm. right now. Can we measure that in a way? Can we start to sort of measure progress when it comes to equality and diversity. I certainly hope so. Because that'll make it sticky, right? That'll make people sticky. Exactly. And if people make money, look, they're going to keep doing it. That's a fact. It's Bloomberg. (laughs) I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Let's check in with Ron Carson, Chief Executive Officer of the Carson group joining us on the phone from lovely Aspen, Colorado. So, Ron, I got to ask you today, wow. I mean, this has been really something to behold. I'm not sure this is what we expected coming into this week and certainly not what we've gotten used to. What do you make of this meltdown? Yeah, well, I think it's actually a healthy thing. I mean, you look at the market up 60% off the March lows, the market trading you know, purely on momentum, not on fundamentals. Um, and you got all kinds of cash out there chasing a handful of names. You know, you Apple, Tesla, of course, Zoom. Um, and these markets, you know, these companies, as great as they are, just can't continue to go straight up. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say, hey, this is a reason. If you've been, if you're long these companies, you've got gains in them. This reminds me a little bit of the third quarter of 1998. We had the correction. Then the markets jumped right back to trend up 20% in the fourth quarter, which, of course, set us up for the famous bubble uh, in 1999. Mm-hmm. So do you buy this dip or is this 1999? I wouldn't buy the dip. I, I, you know, I think, I think it's – if you – again, if you have – I would definitely – we're calling it election protection – I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there, and I would hedge my overall portfolio. If you've got large gains, I wouldn't take them, but I would definitely de-risk the portfolio um, by simply going in and, and looking what your, you know, your your risk level, your beta is on the portfolio, and hedging some of that out with the out of the money put on the S and P 500. 
um, versus taking a certain gain and then paying that tax on it. And for a lot of people, it's going to be a short-term capital gain, which, of course, is a much higher tax rate. So I, I would hedge here, but I don't think I would be rushing to put money to work here. The market definitely has some work to do uh, to consolidate if it, if, it, if it ends up holding its support line. So, Ron, how does the Fed figure into all of this? Obviously, there was much made, it feels like rightly, about what we heard from Chair Jay Powell at Jackson Hole, or for sort of virtual Jackson Hole last week. That's the world we're living in. Um, but what do you make of that? What do you make of the Fed's role in all of this? They've been such a savior in many people's eyes to date. Uh, but what happens from here? Well, I think that's why you saw, I mean, part of that, I think, was already reflected in the market. And when Powell came out and said, hey, we're really reshifting our priorities, we're going to move um, inflation to the number two position, employment to number one. I think that signal to the market, rates are going to stay low for a long time. I mean, I think as far out as the eye can see, and of course, the market, um, you know, applauded that and sent stocks even higher. And, you know, the Fed would certainly like to have some room. They'd like to be able to raise interest rates, but I don't think they're going to do it and can't do it uh, anytime soon. We're in a we're in a world here, 220, you know, 2020, that we've never experienced before, and neither has the Fed, by the way. And they're learning as they go, as we are. But I think they're going to be very careful to raise interest rates so you can bank on very low interest rates in the foreseeable future, probably for the next three to five years at least. Right. So raise the question, like, I don't know how you can sell tech for the medium term with, with that thesis. If, if yields aren't going anywhere, don't you just have to own the growth names? Well, I think you can get in trouble a little bit, Alex, there, if just buying it just because interest rates are going to be low. But I will let me, let me give a counterpoint to that. And I, and I heard Eric Smith talking last week, and he made a point I had really not thought of. And when people were asking about valuations and tech stocks, I said, does this shock you? And he said, listen, we what we thought was going to take at least 10 years happened in a few months as the world shifted to becoming even more digital. You know, those that were comfortable with digital communications and doing business digitally are doing it even at a higher level. And even those that have never touched or had any kind of digital experience are now within the digital world. And so I think also markets trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we handicap that? You know, what is the proper valuation for it? And you bring up an, an excellent point with interest rates low, people are really struggling for where to put capital today. I mean, you can't sit in money market accounts, you can't sit in CDs and bonds have no yield. And then you start looking at, you know, value stocks that really aren't growing, right? Their earnings aren't growing like the growth stocks are. So that election protection that you mentioned, I love that turn of phrase, by the way. What do you make of the next 60 days as an investor as we see these candidates just bounce back and forth with very different visions of the current world and the near-term world? Well, the market, Jason, hates uncertainty. And and also, if the market starts to handicap, and this is not a partisan comment at all, but if the market starts to handicap that that we're going to have a Democratic administration and a Democratic-controlled Congress, which I think the probability is very low for that, that's not going to be good for the market. The market wants there to be, um, you know, gridlock in Washington. As long as, you know, the politicians can't do too much to mess things up, the market seemed to figure that, 
figure things out on their own. And and but however, if you start to tilt one way or the other, uh, the markets aren't going to like that. And I think it is very prudent in here to put some downside protection on your portfolio. It's no different than buying fire insurance on your house. You buy it, you hope it doesn't burn down. Uh, but if it does, you feel great that you had some protection. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is going to be a heck of a 60 days. We know that to be true. All right. Really nice to have you along with us on this Thursday, this day when we are seeing a lot of selling uh, stocks off their lows, uh, just barely. Uh, So we're going to finish uh, in pretty deep red territory here. Uh, Ron Carson, Chief Executive Officer of the Carson Group, joining us on the phone with some good perspective. Uh, some perspective is needed, that's for sure, Alex. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, what we do tomorrow also, because you have a long weekend in the U.S., and you have Jobs Friday, uh, and then you have sort of everyone back in full swing yeah. uh, next Tuesday. So what kind of positions will be really taken on will be very interesting. Watch the levels. Back in full swing, pandemic style. We don't yeah, even yeah. The know new what that looks like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, a lot of big questions and a lot of big question marks, and that may be why the market finally a little bit uneasy. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.